Good evening, London, and hi, Vikram. It is 2022. I cannot believe it, and we're already in February. And in January, I never got a chance to create a podcast episode, so I'm going to do a slightly longer version today. I've been very busy over the last few weeks, but today I just felt. It's the right time to get back into the podcast. Yeah, today is Sunday, and it has been really a couple of days of windy and rainy weather here in Ivecum. Loads of storms. Seen、uh, some trains being cancelled, the Chiltern line going into London. There were loads of cancellations on Friday, so I worked on, from home on Friday. And hopefully this week, the trains are going to be running well again. The Chiltern line is usually quite reliable, so usually quite easy. And Punctual to get into London. It was also today in the Aden Center. The Aden Center is a is a big modern shopping center in High Wycombe, and it's an interesting one because part of it is outdoors and part of it is covered. It's still outdoors and it's kind of cold, but then there's certain areas where you have to walk and you're gonna get wet when it's raining. So that's exactly what happened today. And it was great to see that people are getting back to life and back to normal, moving around. You can see people's faces and. It's just pleasant to be able to kind of go into a retail park again, and you know, and、uh, doing some shopping. And、um, well, that brings me into、uh, sales. And today, what I want to talk about is something that is important. But sales enablement usually doesn't do a great job with that, and we're going to look at this. Why that is? We're going to look at that. I want to talk about how to measure the impact of sales training. And before we get into that, I want a bit of talk about a bit about you know why why is it important? Well, if you think about it. When you do any training in sales, you usually tend to, you know, take people off their day job. So you're actually getting salespeople to do something that isn't directly related to generating business, and you should have a really good justification for doing that, because you're using valuable time. Taken away, maybe from making sales calls, and you're doing this because 
you probably think that your sales training is important, is relevant, will help salespeople to become even more productive, sell more, etc. The other thing why sales training is important is obviously when you're doing onboarding, getting people up to speed, uh, helping new salespeople with some you know, guidance in terms of how to sell and how to be productive. And measuring the impact is something that doesn't very often get done. And if it does get done, it doesn't get done very well. And there's a couple of reasons for that. When you look at the way training in general gets designed, usually there's a request in some way from you know the sales team, uh, maybe related to some strategic goal, hopefully, which makes that effort much more valuable. But then training gets either designed and delivered internally or you're going to go outside and spend money, spend some budget on getting, you know, training delivered from an outside. So, so just a general sales training, just talking about maybe sales methodology training or you're releasing a new product, you're going to do some sales training around this. And what tends to happen is that there is a request that will be done. And then when it comes to measuring the success, uh, very often you get that traditional happy sheet that has been used in training where there's a survey that has been either sent out right after the training or at the end of the training, it's been filled out. And what you're really doing there is just measuring the reaction to the program or to the training. Well, this gives you an indication of happiness from the participants. It also gives you an indication of knowledgeable, are they knowledgeable maybe because you might do a knowledge check-in as part of that, etc. You don't really know if you are having a lasting impact in terms of behavior change that you're trying to achieve or having an impact even on business, on business figures, business numbers. Is it helping you to generate better deals, better in the sense of bigger deals, uh, maybe deals where you're giving less margin away? All these kind of things uh, you know, are relevant there. And The reason is that very often that the training gets designed around, you know, hey, we're going to do a product training or, hey, we're going to do a sales methodology training or, hey, we're going to do this type of training. But the reason behind is usually you want to achieve a business impact. And when you're going outside, you're even, you know, spending money on a training program. Uh, but even if you develop the training internally and deliver it, 
it still is an opportunity cost that you are spending on because you're taking away, let's say you're designing and delivering a, a one-day training event. That's taken out one day out of a salespeople's uh, agenda or and, and, and calendar. And they'll be on that day, they're not selling. And they have to obviously make up for that or you hopefully your training that you're delivering has an impact on going forward and actually improving productivity. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing this, right? And the way you really need to think about when designing the training is what are the business outcomes that you're looking for? And then you kind of work backwards. So you're looking at the business impact. Then you work backwards and thinking, okay, to achieve that business impact, let's say you want salespeople to close more deals. Okay. The way to achieve that, we identified that it requires a behavior change. So let's say your sales organization is uh, very much product focused or you want to kind of get them to think more about the value that your product or service provides to your customers. So you go back and say, okay, well, the sales training that you're delivering uh, is, is about changing kind of the mindset and the behavior uh, and the behavior in the sense on how, you know, customers maybe approach sales conversations, sales calls, etc., etc. So you're going from the business impact back to the behaviors that you want to change. And then you want them to know something, maybe a new framework uh, for uh, the calls, or you want a new framework for conversations with customers, etc. So you want them to re remember that framework and use that framework. So now you kind of start to see there's like a chain of events that happens. So when you design the training, you need to think about those things. But then when you deliver that training, so what you're expecting is, first of all, you deliver the training, you expect them to, uh, you know, enjoy the training, don't waste their time. They learn something, that's the other piece. And then when they learn something that you see them actually changing their behavior and applying what they learned going forward. And then what you expect is that, that what's, what they do, that that has an impact on your business figures in some way or the other. So in staying with this example, so let's say you want uh, them to have a less product-focused conversation, but more uh, a customer or value-focused conversation. So then it's observable behavior that you might see during meetings, uh, sales calls, and then you can, you know, uh, then uh, also measure the impact that has on your training. That's kind of um, what what you're gonna do. Um, one of the things that you need to think about is, you know, what part of this chain do you want to measure? And the good news is in sales, we do measure, obviously, uh, closed deals. 
uh, and there's a lot more data uh, in a CRM that has been available to you. And you can use those metrics to measure the sales success. The piece that, that you need to still do is you need to create that chain of events and we need to measure that. Um, what I mean by that is, yeah, the salespeople might be selling more, more deals and better deals, but how do you know that that sales training is the cause of that? Because you might be competing with something other that is going on, like uh, maybe your company is running a marketing campaign at the same time you're rolling out that sales training. Then is it the marketing campaign that is helping you to generate better deals or is it your sales training? How do you know? And there's a few ways of, you know, looking at that. So the first thing, obviously, is you need to establish that there is a chain. Of events so when you run the sales training you need to first of all get a positive reaction to it uh, maybe your salespeople you ask them the question would they recommend it to a colleague if they say no then they probably don't see an awful lot of value in it and you better go back to the drawing board and think about you know what you do the next time but if they say yes then you need to establish if they actually learn something. So you need some form of a knowledge check, maybe. Um, it could be something simple that you do straight afterwards. And then you need to see, do they actually apply what they learned? Um, you need to measure that in some way. That could be manager observation. It could be uh, listening to calls. It could be a 90-day survey where they actually report back. Um, so once you've done that, and then you get the link and say, well, they are changing. So, you, so your sales training was successful, but you reacted really well to it. Then they learned the stuff. You can prove that. You can then prove that the behavior has changed. And then you see that the sales figures have changed or in some way positively. And you still need to kind of be able to prove that it is really the training that has done that. Um, and there's probably three approaches that you can take. One of them is uh, you look at the trend, the trend that you have before you roll out the training and the trend afterwards. Now, of course, if you had a marketing campaign at the same time, it gets tricky. But if there's nothing major other than that happening, the trend line will give you a good indication if your training has really actually is making a difference to your to your bottom line, basically, or to your sales figures that you wanted to influence and uh, increase or improve. So the trend line is one thing. The other thing what you can do is you could, in theory, have a control group. So you roll out the, the sales training only to a subgroup to a, maybe a smaller team, see how they say their sales uh, numbers change and compare it to the rest of the staff. It's not easy to do sometimes because obviously salespeople talk to each other. Um, if, the, if the sales training is quite complex, it might work. If it's something simple, uh, you know, it might spill over to people who you know, have not been taken part in the training, but they will go ahead and yeah, 
apply it and then <laughs> then you can't really compare the two. The other problem you have is if you say, hey, you know, we've got different territories and we're doing harm, you know, you're selling your product maybe in Germany, in France, in the UK, uh, in the US, and you say, hey, you know what, we're going to roll out in the US and then compare it, you know, with uh, the rest of the world. The markets very often, as you know, are not so comparable. So you need to kind of compare markets that are very, very similar. And of course, they're not. So that could be a challenge there. So it all depends on what what, uh, you, what and how you sell. And then the third one is kind of like a, yeah, uh, one that probably uh, works most of the time. It's not ideal, but what you can do is you can try to get um, expert input so what you're do, doing literally is a survey and you're asking the salespeople themselves to actually say, you know what, the current figures are improving. How much do you think is the sales training, uh, you know, the driving force behind that? And then you can put that into a system. There's actually a system that you can use to do this. And it's accountancy-based, so it's very, very solid. And it's based on Kirkpatrick's model of measuring the impact of training programs. Kirkpatrick, he came up with this model where you have those different levels of, of impact of training. The first one is the reaction to a training program. So it's that typical happy sheet that you measure. You know, people have been happy with it. That's great. Then there's the knowledge. That's level level two. Um, then the knowledge is, then after that is the behavior. It's, do you see a behavior change? That's level three. And then do you see a business impact? That's level four. So there's a framework that you can use to do that. Um, there's, a, there's a company uh, or an institute called uh, the ROI Institute that has actually developed a complete framework to measure training programs. And it goes another step. It actually calculates the return on investment using solid accounting and financial principles. So what you can do with that system is, is actually go, if you do an investment, let's say you go out there and invest in a, in a, in a sales training, Let's say you're doing a leadership program for all your managers, for your sales managers, and you spend, I don't know, you spend, you know, a million dollars on it. What you can do then is go back, implement that program, and then measure the return on investment and uh, see if that money was well spent. It's, uh, it's something you can do. Now, the idea is not to go to all these five levels for every single training that you do. You need to be focused on certain impacts. So, I mean, for example, for onboarding, uh, there, there's really uh, no need to go to level five because onboarding you got to do in any case. You need to get your salespeople onboarded really well. So there's certain checks you need to do on that. But it wouldn't make much sense to do a an ROI analysis and study on that. But if you're doing a high-profile program, 
then it might be worth looking into a level four at least, business impact, see if that makes sense. And then if you are a company that wants to really look at it from a financial side of things, uh, then the ROI analysis for it, for an expensive program would, would probably be something you want to be doing. So that's a couple of ideas around how to measure um, sales training. So there's loads of options. Uh, some of them are more complex than others. Some of the simple things that you can do, I mean, you might be you know, thinking, oh, it's a bit overwhelming, four or five levels of uh, analysis. Some of the th simple things you can do is, well, you can always do a really good survey straight after the training. Keep that survey short. And there's two key questions you want to ask in that survey. So if you do a sales training, ask two questions specifically, in addition to the other questions that you should be asking. But don't make it too long. A max of, you know, five to ten questions. That's what I would ask. Not more than that. You don't want anybody overwhelmed them with surveys. But the two key questions in a program are, are there any barriers to implementing what you learned? And if there are any barriers, which ones are they? And the second one is, are there any things that help with implementing this that uh, you know maybe have been overseen? Um, so those are, those are the two things you want to kind of get right away after the sales training, because if there are barriers, you need to know what they are. Uh, and if there are any things that you can do to get these done very, very easily, that's another area that you should be looking into. The, the other thing you can do fairly easily is a 90-day survey. Now, you can do a knowledge check as well. You can build that as part of that uh, first uh, survey. You can do maybe a knowledge check if needed. The other one is the 90-day survey. Why 90 days? Well, you want to, first of all, people might be going back with, with that new stuff that they learned and apply it for a week or two, and then they start to fall back into the old habits. So you don't want to do that survey too quick. You want to give it about 90 days, because if they don't do it anymore after 90 days, then you need to think about the coaching side of things. How, what are the things that you have done in the sales training that is, you know, crucial in terms of embedding what has been learned through coaching? You will rely on that. So the 90 days, after 90 days, is a good time to go back and see have the behaviors changed at that point. And that could be a survey, for example, to the, to the managers to just, you know, find out are people actually doing what we are asking them to do? So that's that, that. Those are a couple of simple things that you can do. So at least at the behavior level. And then I tend to say that we are lucky in sales that a lot of stuff gets measured in a CRM. So we should be fairly easily being able to track some of those sales KPIs. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today is about 
your sales messaging. So think about your customers nowadays. They have this huge pool of information available online. So when they're evaluating you as a vendor, or when they actually to speak to a salesperson, unless it's cold calling, with the exception of cold calling, if they speak to you as a salesperson, what are the chances that they already have looked at your website? What are the chances that they have already maybe even are trying out your product? Uh, if there's a trial or what are the chances that they're already well informed? And this is quite rather different to how it used to be. I mean, people used to go on trade shows to find out about new products. Um, that was in the old days where the internet was kind of slow. People didn't have broadband, didn't have a fast internet access. It's a time where Netflix was, you know, sending out DVDs in the post for you to watch a film. So those days, people went on trade shows, talked to salespeople, find out about new features and benefits, etc., etc. Nowadays, your salespeople being contacted when a lot of the sales or the buying cycle has already happened. So who do you think does normally is normally in charge of the messaging? Well, you would probably think it's mostly the marketing teams nowadays because they're the ones who are driving the content on your website. They're the ones who are driving the content of any PDFs, brochures, etc. that are for download on your website. So a lot of the messaging is being pushed out there from the marketing side. At the same time, the human interaction that is actually happening with a salesperson is the place where you actually have a, a bi-directional discussion. Because before, yeah, you might have limited social media discussion already as a customer, but not very likely. When, when customers research, they're just probably quite passive. So the other team and the other you know, folks in your company who are actually in charge of messaging are your salespeople. Of course they are. So they are messaging the positioning of the product to your customers. And I'm going to tell you a story about a case study that I came across when I was studying at university. And it was a case study about IKEA or IKEA who, you know, are a company that now have stores pretty much around the world. And that case study was about their expansion into the U.S. So they took, literally, 
the products that they had well and tested in, in Europe, they took them and started to put them into the US. So they put them into the, into the warehouse or into the actual stores into the US. And, you know, if you have been to IKEA before, IKEA before, you, you know that you, you're coming in, you're going to go through uh, normally a whole area of uh, furniture everywhere. You're going to go up and down. Then you might have your lunch in there. Yeah, you got those uh, IKEA meatballs, maybe, or uh, salmon or whatever it is. You're going to have that. You got that uh, coffee free coffee with refills, etc., etc. So you get all that. Then you go downstairs. Um, and the half a day is already gone. You go downstairs and you go into this huge area of uh, household stuff. Uh, you can buy plates, uh, coffee mugs, all kinds of things, your glasses to drink. Uh, you can go into a section where they sell flowers and uh, artificial flowers and vases for the flowers. You can put those in. So they took all this and put that into the U.S. And, uh, and they stocked it accordingly to their, you know, what, what their forecast was for what they think. Oh, well, you know, we know roughly, you know, that we're selling so many glasses and we know we're selling so many of these artificial flowers and we know we're selling so many of those vases for the flowers. And, you know, we put these into the U.S., and when they looked on the initial sales figures, they just were surprised. And they were surprised because what happened, um, glasses they, in Europe, they sell really well. They sell a lot of glasses. And yeah, you sell some of those flowers as well. And, you know, and you, you sell a few of those vases as well. But the ratio was like, well, glasses you know, a ton of glasses uh, versus a small amount of vases. And in the U.S., it was the opposite. So they were selling hardly any of those glasses. They just didn't sell. Uh, but the vases, uh, they, they would sell, but they would sell much higher than the artificial flowers they were selling. Just the vases were just flying off the shelves. And they really didn't really understand why that was initially. And what they found was that, well, if you have been to the U.S., you know, and you go to the restaurants and, you know, you go to a, maybe a cheesecake factory, etc. You walk into those, you know, you get, you know, now lovely cheesecake at the end. You probably end up bringing half back home or back into the hotel. But, when you come to the drinks, a lot of people drink iced tea, um, and every drink in the U.S. has a huge amount of ice cubes in it. So the glasses are actually quite big. Where in Europe, you get these tiny glasses, these small glasses, where they, they give you maybe an ice cube or maybe two ice cubes if you're lucky. So in the U.S., they, you give you five, six ice cubes in there. So the glasses are bigger. So what they found is that Customers of IKEA, they were buying those vases to use as glasses because the, the, it was just the right size for a drink. Um, so why I'm saying this? Uh, because that's a really important piece 
in terms of what your sales messaging should be doing. Uh, sales messaging should be built around your customers and it should not be built around your product um, because people use the products in different ways. As you can see in the IKEA example, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing, right? It's, it's a dramatic difference driven by cultural differences, driven by, uh, by behavior, by consumer behavior in this case. So when this positioning happens and you got, you know, the marketing department doing one thing and then you got the salespeople doing something different. So you in the IKEA, you know, the salespeople probably on the, on the floor where the vases were, you know, people would just, you know, help them to buy the vases and say, hey, do you have any of these that I could use as a glass for glass of water or, or iced tea? And they say, yeah, sure. These ones would work fine. So now you've got a different messaging. <laughs> the website tells you that's for flowers, but the salesperson is saying, I know you can use it for, you know, for your drink. So that's a, an interesting one. So... Positioning is actually done by your sales team. The salespeople are doing the positioning because they're talking to your customer directly. Um, not saying that you know marketing isn't involved because obviously nowadays even marketing, especially digital marketing, is bidirectional, right? It used to be different. All you had to do is putting ads out on TV or radio or in newspapers and magazines. It was your message. And there was no interaction, really. Well, now you put your messages out on the website. There might be a blog where you can comment. Uh, there's a Twitter feed where you can react to, uh, make comments, etc. So it's quite different in, in marketing as well nowadays. But in the end, it's your salespeople who are doing the positioning. And guess what? If you, if you have... A different messaging that is for coming from the marketing team and when your customers have already during the initial part of the buying uh, stages already explored those messages then they talk to a salesperson and they hear totally different messaging they might be quite confused um, so it's really important to have a, a really good alignment between sales and marketing messaging And I would say positioning even becomes even more complicated or complex if you're serving different industries with your product. So think about that. Cool. That's what I wanted to talk about today. And I wish you a fantastic week ahead and take care.